herbicide resistance is such a challenge for weed management, but having herbicide tolerant traits in crops like, you know, corn or sorghum or uh, cotton or soybean is such a beneficial thing for growers. It, uh, it helps them to have a very good weed management and then also rotate herbicides and whatnot. A whole new era of communication in the crop industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the crop industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the field, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. KWS Hybrid Rye, seeding the future since 1856. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global crop industry. Welcome to the Crop Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Arnell. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Mathila Jugalam from Kansas State University with us. Her research program focuses in weed physiology in the agronomy department at Kansas State. And it encompasses weed problems in crop and rangeland systems with an emphasis on herbicide mode of action and fate and herbicide plants in the environment. Specifically, the research is focused in the area of herbicide resistance, including mechanisms and inheritance of herbicide resistance in weeds, the effect of elevated temperature on herbicide efficacy, and the identification of sources of herbicide tolerance in crops. Well, Mathila, welcome to the Crop Science Podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks for having me today. Can you tell our, our audience a little bit about how first how you ended up at Kansas from where you came from and, and what you do at K-State? Sure. Thank you again. Um, I'm originally from India, where I obtained my BSc and MSc in agriculture in two top land grant institutions. I'm pretty much aware of uh, how the research and education in land grant institutions uh, usually work. And after my master's degree, I also worked with the Indian government as a scientist uh, with Indian Council of Agriculture Research, which is pretty similar to USDA in here, uh, US. Uh, after working for Two years, then I moved along with my husband to Canada when he got a job opportunity. At that time, I wanted to pursue further education and applied for a PhD program at another big land grant institution in Canada, which is the University of Guelph. I'm fortunate to get accepted in the wheat science program there. That's how my wheat science exposure, especially to wheat physiology and molecular biology, uh, I did uh, my PhD work in those areas. And after working as a postdoctoral fellow at the same university in Canada, I was hired as a faculty here at Kansas State University uh, in the same area of my expertise, which is weed physiology. So I've been with Kansas State since uh, 2011, October. Uh, it's uh-huh. been a long time now. <laughs> uh, uh, but I really enjoy my work here. So that kind of gives you a background about how I ended up here at K-State. But in terms of what I do at K-State is I have both research and teaching appointment 
but I have 70% research and 30% teaching appointment. So, um, like you described in the introduction, Brian, I, I have multiple areas of research related to weed and herbicide interactions. Uh, in terms of looking at a big picture, majority of my research is focused on why we have some weeds evolving resistance to herbicides while we can control other weeds very easily. So we dig into deep, uh, look at molecular level, physiological level, as well as, you know, we do a lot of whole plant analysis as well. So that kind of is about 60% or even um, close to 70% of my research. And as you mentioned, we also do quite a bit of work looking at what are these environmental factors that can affect our weed performance or when you apply herbicides, whether weeds can be killed or not. Not necessarily it is related to resistance. Sometimes environment can affect the herbicide performance, thereby challenges with weed control. In this regard, we have looked at temperature in particular, how increased temperature can affect weed management. Uh, we have looked at multiple weed species that are important here in Kansas and across U.S. as well. And more recently, we have invested quite a bit of time in looking for herbicide-tolerant traits in crops. You know, while herbicide resistance is such a challenge for um, weed management, but having herbicide-tolerant traits in crops like, you know, corn or sorghum or uh, cotton or soybean is such a beneficial thing for growers. It, uh, it helps them to have a very good weed management and then also rotate herbicides and whatnot. So this is also, I believe, is a very important area, especially in minor, minor crops where industry is not going to invest so much as an academic institution. If we invest our time looking at what are our opportunities in improving crops like sorghum, for example, in terms of herbicide tolerance, uh, how can we get benefited from them in terms of weed management? Explore the future of agriculture with KWS, a global leader in innovation and sustainable farming practices. Uncover the exceptional qualities of our hybrid rye, cultivating a legacy for a greener tomorrow. Visit kws.com forward slash us for more information and for dealer locations. KWS, seeding the future since 1856. So so that's interesting. I also work in a lot of the minor crops, uh, sorghum um, specifically. Uh, what kind of work are you doing in sorghum as far as looking for crop tolerance and how do you have to juggle the ability of sorghum to cross with some of their weed species? Yeah, excellent question. That's something we always think about before even starting this kind of research, right? Ultimately, all the effort we put in in identifying the tolerance in the end, if it's not going to be helpful, that's not going to work. First, to answer your first question, as probably you and many of your listeners know, we do have some herbicide-resistant sorghum technology available now, like double team uh, or Inzen sorghum, uh, they are there for growers. Uh, so we are focusing on herbicides that are not already 
been investigated and available for growers. In that regard, we are we have spent quite a bit of time in looking for tolerance to HPPD inhibitors, which is uh, one group of herbicide. Usually, they are referred as bleaching herbicide. Uh, they are widely used in corn because corn is naturally tolerant to those herbicides, but not registered for use in sorghum. So we started to look for natural tolerance in uh, sorghum. We have screened a large number of uh, genotypes uh, collected from across the U.S. and around the globe as well. In that regard, we were able to identify a few genotypes that showed tolerance. And as a next step, we also looked at why are these tolerant? What, make, what makes them to be tolerant? In terms of mechanistic studies, we have done quite a bit. And more recently, we are also looking for tolerance to PPO inhibitor herbicides as well. And um, uh, another group like ACCA inhibitors like, like Coclotidim or Fusalafop, those are the other targeted herbicides we are looking at. So, so while you're screening for tolerance in sorghum, are you also screening for tolerance in Johnson grass to see if you could bring a gene across like they would, say, in weedy rice moving into cultivated rice? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. In fact, if you look at how the Zen sorghum was developed, is the gene came from the wild species, right? They identified resistance to ALS inhibitors in wild, and they brought it. Uh, the you know university and they make crosses yeah it's the same thing yeah we have done some screenings of uh, Johnson grass as well as Johnson grass as well as shattercane collection but we couldn't find any tolerance to HPPD inhibitors in those uh, obviously uh, only two weeds so far luckily only two weeds in the U.S. that are resistant to HPPD inhibitors like Palmer amaranth and water hemp. They are, palmer amaranth is a huge problem in sorghum production. So, yeah, that's, that's there. Uh, but luckily, not in, uh, our, uh, we don't have it in wild species related to sorghum yet. So, to answer your question about, all right, if we are successful in getting the HPPD inhibitor trait in grower's field, Whenever it happens, uh, uh, what if it moves into the wilds, wild relatives, right? Two ways I look at it, Brian. There was some good work done at Texas A&M looking at what's the gene flow kind of from sorghum to wild relatives and what would be the progeny in terms of their uh, fertility or germination in the field in nature. Based on my understanding, it's not going to be so big of a problem in terms of how many fertile progeny we get or even they germinate or not. Uh, that is not uncommon if you look at uh, wheat versus jointed goat grass or even canola and related wild mustard species. When, the, when they move to wild, essentially because of difference in species, uh, uh, there could be an issue in terms of fertility of the offspring. So um, that may help us in management, but we cannot take that for granted. Mother Nature is very, very, uh, I mean, unbelievable. You may see, you may end up having more progeny. So my answer to that is, uh, luckily, the genotypes we identified, 
that are resistant to one uh, herbicide within the HPPD inhibitors like uh, Callisto or Agnisotrione. Uh, they are not the same that we identified for Lardis or Chembotrione. So, which is good in terms of management, assuming that our uh, sorghum that is resistant to mesotrione is moved to shattercane or Johnson grass, at least tembotrione can work to control them. So, that, that helped us in terms of not identifying the same genotypes resistant to all HPPD inhibitors. This kind of difference really helps us for the management if, if or when it moves into the wild species. And, th and that's one thing I, I, I try to remind farmers when they speak of this transition of genes across the wilds is that if you're following the best management practice of the herbicides that we're utilizing, that practice takes into account any potential crosses because you're trading herbicide modes of action and therefore any any prodigy that does have survivability should be um, in included and gotten rid of. Uh, which is also uh, kind of leads into the next question with a crop like sorghum and you could transfer that to wheat and others that have have near relatives would we ever see like a triple or quadruple stack like we might see in a cotton or in corn uh i i see again you know talking to some of the growers they like it they like to have stacked resistances so one good thing about um uh, obviously, the need for it is very good, very high. Um, I would say even if if it is done in academic institutions with you know publicly available material, we should be able to cross them and identify a progeny having resistance to two herbicide. Um, in my opinion, that is very good in terms of management too. That gives option for tank mixes of herbicides and probably help us to manage herbicide-resistant weeds as well. So you are not depending on only one mode of action. And while stacking, you obviously look for different modes of action of herbicide groups. So as we move, um, kind of moving into the next topic, you, you mentioned the effect of temperature. Can you kind of you know, fill us more in on some of the work uh, that you've done in that realm? Because that was a very interesting comment that I, I took a note of and I want to dive into. So, so sure, yeah. Sure with that. So this is all started again with uh, uh, my collaboration with the extension folks. You probably know our uh, previous extension specialist, Dr. Curtis Thompson. He did he did a lot of work with uh, sorghum weed management. So I I just joined here I think in 2020 2013 or so I was talking to Dr. Thompson. He said, "Oh, I see. Um, this is an observation, Mithila. I see when I apply herbicides early in the morning versus when I go and apply. Depending on the wind and other factor, you cannot go and apply whenever you want. There are some things to consider." I see a big difference in terms of weed control. Uh, obviously, uh, he, uh, he understands, I also understand that that doesn't mean they, there is resistance in the weed. For resistance, we have to do a thorough analysis. But this, if this in the same field, some plants are controlled that when you apply one time of the day versus 
later when you see temperatures are rising. So then I thought, okay, this is something that we can investigate and see what exactly is going on. What we did was first we started with Palmer amaranth plants that are known to be susceptible. Again, we took the HPPD inhibitor as an example. And we have access or facility here at Kansas State University in our agronomy department. They're very well controlled growth chamber facilities. So we grew Palmer amaranth plants uh, under two different temperature regimes, exposing them to high temperature, some at optimum temperature, some at even low temperature. Then uh, we grew them and at the uh, right stage of uh, their um, growth, we applied mesotrione, starting with very low dose to high dose. We did dose response studies and all. What we found was uh, when these plants were exposed to high temperature stress, they are not able to be controlled well versus when they are at low temperature. It was done multiple times and we saw the same result. Again, we went, uh, as a physiologist, my next interest is why is it? What is happening to plants at high temperature? Why are we not able to control them when they are grown at high temperature? So when we did the, when we did the physiological analysis, we found that the metabolism or metabolic ability of plants is very high at high temperature. The herbicide is getting degraded much quicker. Therefore, plant is able to survive. So that kind of uh, the first work in this area we started. Following that, we have also done a lot of work with uh, Palmer amaranth, which is resistant to 2,4-D water hemp. And kochia, kochia is a big problem for us uh, on the western side. And uh, we also have done some ragweed work in collaboration with Dr. Amit Jala in uh, Nebraska. So these are few weed species we worked with. So when we we talk about high temperature, can you can you classify what in your study was considered high? Yeah, it's a very good question. In fact, a high temperature we pick for sorghum is not going to work for wheat or soybean, right? How we take how we pick the temperatures is that. So we take the weather data from our weather data library and look at the average temperatures during sorghum growing period and at the time we apply the herbicide, like, you know, post-emergence. When do we, we plant late in May, early June, and then when will the plants ready? So we take the temperatures uh, from the database for several years and see the average temperature. And we pick that high and low temperature to set up our growth chambers. And then we pick... Um, low temperatures like 10 degrees below that and high temperature a bit uh, 10 degrees above just get an idea of uh, what would be uh, the did you, did you uh, maintain uh, constant relative humidity or did that change with temperature yeah that's a very good question see in growth chambers when you do these experiments under controlled growth chamber conditions uh, if we are looking at one factor in this case the temperature uh, we cannot manipulate other conditions, right? It has to be same across. So in that regard, uh, our other, like light intensity or relative humidity, they are all kept constant. Only the variable we looked at was the temperature. 
So if you were to look at it, because often in, especially in sorghum, as we increase temperature, not uh, not always, but often you'd, you'd probably expect a decrease in humidity, at least in Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas. As we get hot, we get dry. So can you, do you have any research that looked at the, the humidity or can you, you know, uh, postulate about how the humidity would also impact the results? Yeah, no, we, we, we really thought about that. And I absolutely, I agree with you that in the real life or in the field, the humidity and also moisture are not necessarily always be the same. So to answer your question about humidity, yeah, humidity is an important component, but if you look at different herbicide groups, the the effect of humidity on herbicide absorption or uptake is more prominent to some herbicide like glufosinate. Definitely, we have seen pretty clear. But on the other hand, some of the systemic herbicides like HPPD inhibitors or 2,4-D, uh, oxygen, synthetic oxygen herbicide, uh, rather than humidity, we it's all about the temperature. Humidity may influence, I'm not ruling out that factor, but I do not um, see the um, results may be drastically different if we had done this in the field conditions. That's that, that's interesting, and I was I was wondering about just the plant metabolism. Probably temperatures of greater influence, unless there's drought stress. So, um, have you looked at this, or just thinking physiologically, how does drought stress influence the metabolism of a plant? Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing we have looked at in terms of drought stress again in collaboration with Dr. Jala over in Nebraska. That those experiments were done over there. They had a night system where they can. Um, uh, ma- maintain how much moisture or how much water has been added in each part each day. So, you know, they measure the volume and they come up with how much. So in terms of that, definitely there was a big, big effect in terms of moisture stress and weed control, which is given. But you asked about metabolism. Uh, Such work we have not done. And I don't think in the literature, I remember anything was looked at. Uh, into weed, weed management. I mean, in crops, a lot of work was done again, you know, in weeds. Um, uh, the, the, the main requirement to study such uh, moisture stress effect and herbicide efficacy is we need to have a very good um, controlled moisture supply system in the greenhouse. So we haven't done, I, I don't know exactly what, how it can work. Um, if I want to speculate, definitely the metabolism. Um, when you when plants are under stress, the growth is obviously affected. But as a as a defense mechanism, probably they work these enzymes that are known to metabolize may be much more active in working on those herbicide molecules. That's fascinating. Any other research you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I probably would like to, which is um, uh, very exciting as a scientist to me, and I see in the future some potential also. So I mentioned one of the expertise of mine is looking at the molecular mechanisms. So when we looked at glyphosate resistance in Palmer amaranth, which is widespread across Midwest or across the U.S., the mechanism ended up being... Uh, very, very similar to what you see in microorganisms. Like, you know, you have this uh, plasmid kind of uh, 
uh, vector existing in the microorganism cell that that also carries some genes. So what we found in Palmer amaranth is something similar. In the Palmer amaranth cell, plant cell, the genome or the inside the nucleus, we also have seen such structures like plasmid, which carried glyphosate uh, target gene. It's kind of, it duplicated on its own because it has autonomous replicating units. It doesn't follow any Mendelian rules at all. It's on its own, just duplicated up multiple times. And we have seen plants with uh, more than 100 copies. That means they can make so much enzyme, even if you apply 10 times the field recommended dose of glyphosate, <laughs> you can't kill them. <laughs> so that was very exciting to know. First time in the plant, that kind of discovery, we were able to publish it in PNAS uh, journal. That was pretty exciting. I would say the Eureka moment in, a, in my career. It's absolutely exciting from a weed scientist, but from a, from somebody trying to kill weeds, it's scary. <laughs> scary. No, no, I, I completely agree with you. And we thought about it. Oh, how can we stop these plants making? Is there any way we can do? So we looked in the literature. The mechanism I just described is very common in cancer cells in humans. So humans that have these cancerous cells, they tend to just can't respond to any medication because of this kind of. So what they found was in, in, um, in the lab, in, if you have such kind of uh, duplication going on, uh, if you take the selection from that particular molecule or the chemical, these, these structures, circular structures, they just dissipate. They, they are not going to be as active when you have the selection going on all the time. Based on that, what we hypothesize is, for example, grow the glyphosate-resistant plants in the greenhouse without just applying anything, any herbicide or specifically glyphosate on it, get next generation seed produce, see a couple of generations, see if, you, if the number of copies are going down, eventually if we can make them susceptible. That's a long term. Obviously, in the field, it's not going to be easy to do. But as a proof of concept, we are doing that work in the greenhouse condition, growing the plants, not exposing to glyphosate, multiple generations, seeing if these plasmid-like structures can disappear. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. So what's the so as you kind of talked to that what's now the future of that I mean what's the possibility of stopping that process I mean is you you mentioned you're looking into but you know do you have high hope or is this something that we have to attack with another chemistry Oh uh, definitely for a immediate approach we have to apply other chemistry uh, I know if you look at glyphosate resistance in Pomeramaran, the same population already are resistant to atrazine. I mean, that is very common in pigweeds, correct? So usually those multiple resistant populations are very common. But not having said that, I, I, I talked to extension folks, probably you know Brian very well. Maybe glufosinate may work well uh, in controlling the glyphosate resistant Pomeramaran. We do have a couple of 
glufosinate resistant population i am not saying we don't but it's not widespread or uh, tank mixes and see how the plant respond those are immediate uh, things to follow now, on the other hand we are also looking at a new technology called rnai mhm i was wondering if you're going to bring that up <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's common in uh, other pest management systems like pathology it's very well uh, um uh, tested and also entomology folks have good data on that how they can control the insect or plant pathogens using this technology in which sense it's relatively new or very few labs are looking at that um this could help especially going back to glyphosate resistant palmer amaranth with such a high amount of enzyme i said right the rnai technology helps us to actually um target those plants that produce more enzyme or more messenger rna basically they stop making that protein so that the plants may not have enough enzyme they will be still susceptible that's something in the long run though yeah we are making baby steps in our lab we are working in that area as well Do you mind taking a minute or two longer to kind of discuss what that process is for any of our listeners that aren't familiar with IPM technologies and kind of break down a little bit further what 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 you're talking about? You mean in in terms of RNAi? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. So RNAi I like I said is not very new uh, in pest management. Uh, what the technology itself what it does is um but your listeners uh, probably are aware that dna makes rna rna makes protein that is the uh, central dogma we all have surviving on that uh, theory so when dna makes rna subsequently if protein is not made then that that's it the protein is not going to be in the cell so rna i what it does is when you have instead of one strand of rna you end up having double stranded rna that will not go further to make protein so what we are inserting in the plant is to make a double stranded rna instead of a single stranded rna so that the protein won't be produced that is artificially done basically we need a sequence of the gene of interest and then you synthesize a double stranded rna and deliver it and see if you can reduce the protein produced thereby no uh, not enough target available so herbicide can still work in the resistant plant and in my understanding this can be a very specific this can target very specific plants very specific species so therefore it's not a broad uh it's a very specific which has a lot of uh, a lot of us who are dealing with uh three and four way resistant weeds there's a lot of excitement in being able to 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 target kochia as you mentioned yeah. or to target excellent excellent point uh, brian yes see we we made a um double stranded rna for epsps gene which is the target site of glyphosate uh we tested in palmer amaranth it didn't work. Uh, we, we did it for palmer amaranth we tested in water hemp it didn't work so even such a close relatives not necessarily it will work so it can be to our advantage right if you are targeting one species 
just go for that technology. That's fantastic. It's time for our famous three. Well, as we wrap up, I've got uh, a three, uh, three standard questions for you as we wrap up today in our conversation. And one is, what do you consider your go-to resource at work? Yeah, very good question. Um, yeah, there will be, there are a lot, but um, for me, you know, uh, um, this morning I had a meeting, uh, somebody asked me one question, what's the end goal of your research? I said, my my goal is my research should reach the grower, ultimate user. Uh, for me, the stakeholder is grower. So, um, in that regard, I, for me, if I need to know what are their problems, I go to extension specialists. I ask them constantly, have you heard any problems? Have you seen? Because we go to these national meetings and we learn, oh, in other states, oh, there is already PPO inhibitor resistant kochia in North Dakota. They found, and in Canada, they were, I asked them, oh, have you heard any cancers growers complaining about lack of control, those things. I mean, they, that's one thing. In terms of uh, online resources, as everybody knows, you know, they are available too. We go to, um, for my research, we have uh, International V Genomic Consortium where we get all the gene sequence information. And also we have a very nice database where we can see how many herbicide species are resistant to glyphosate versus other herbicide, which is maintained by Wheat Science Society of America. Um, uh, other than that, uh, all uh, journals pertain to Wheat Science Program. I definitely access those two also for the information. Well, I can tell work keeps you busy, but is there anything you enjoy in your free time? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. We all need some time to be away from work. A couple of things. I like gardening a lot. Um, Obviously, not in that time of the year, Uh, but I do grow a lot of houseplants as well. Uh, um, When weather gets better, I'm very passionate about my uh, flower beds and also vegetable garden. And I also... I, lo- I learned Indian classical music back when I was growing up in India. I'm continuing that as well. Yeah, those are some of the things I like. Sounds fantastic. Uh, and finally, where, where do people, if somebody wants to find out more about your work, where, what's the best place to go to find out about what you and your lab is doing? Excellent. Yeah, no, we do have a Jugulam Lab website. They can access uh, from uh, Google or when you go to our department website, there is a page for uh, my profile as well, my um, research aspect that we do and what kind of teaching I do, what, what classes I teach. Those are major things where uh, you get a lot of information. Uh, to access my publication, Google Scholar is a very good uh, uh, place to see latest publications from our lab. I do have a LinkedIn page and also Twitter page as well. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Dr. Jigalam, thank you so much for joining us today. And, and folks, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe to the channel. That lets you get any updates and any new podcasts that we release. And make sure that if you learn something, share it with a friend, share it with a relative, and uh, just help us continue this podcast. Leave a comment, give us some suggestions on who you'd like to see as a new guest. 
Mathila, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Great to be with you, Brian. I thank you, our listeners, too, for giving, I mean, on listening to my interview and also you all for the opportunity. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Minutes, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at the help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.